Welcome to the Advice and Insights Podcast with David L. Bonson. We thank you for listening to the Advice and Insights Podcast. This is David Bonson of the Bonson Group. We want to reiterate that today's interview with Ron Barron of Barron Funds, the opinions that Ron expresses are belong to Ron Barron and Barron Funds exclusively and are not necessarily those of Hightower Advisors or the Bonson Group. Furthermore, any of the securities mentioned in individual companies are in no way mentioned for purposes of recommendation or solicitation, but are only mentioned in the context of Ron Barron sharing his stories and the history of Barron Funds and what makes this interview what it is. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy this week's Advice and Insights podcast. Hello and welcome to the Advice and Insights podcast. This is David Bonson, the Chief Investment Officer at the Bonson Group, and we have a very, very special treat today. Uh, We committed in 2018 to trying to bring some of the premier money managers that we work with at the Bonson Group, folks that are that we entrust our client capital to, to uh, assume management oversight of the asset classes that we do not manage directly. And you'll recall a couple months ago, we had our emerging markets partner on one of the podcasts and we have future plans to bring in some of our fixed income managers. But today we have the, the manager and founder of the fund company that the Bonson Group has been proud to call partner now for over two years in the small cap space, particularly a real uh, orientation towards growth investing. And joining me today is Ron Barron of the Barron Funds. Welcome, Ron. Thank you very much. So, Ron, I, um, I, I essentially the the kind of setup of what we're doing here today. We're we're talking to to folks that are well aware of what the Bonson Group does and how we manage money, and that we use other money managers like yourself in particular asset classes that where where there's a, a process and a discipline and a track record that we believe can generate the type of result that, that we want to see for for our clients. In, in the case of, of Barron Funds and, and your experience, particularly the Barron Growth Fund that we are heavy users of, maybe you could just give us a little background as to how you got into the business and what you think about growth investing. Uh, well, uh, thank you. Uh, growth investing and how I got into the business. Uh, I started in this business in 1970. I was uh, I went to law school at night on a scholarship in 1966 through 69. Uh, I left uh, one semester short of graduation. I worked in the patent office in the daytime. Uh, when I came to New York, I was in debt. It was very difficult to get a job. Half the analysts at that time, there were 5,000, 2,500 were unemployed. Uh, it took me three or four months living in my friend's basement before I was able to convince someone to give me a job. I didn't have the proper education. Uh, my job was initially, I was the research department for a regional joke brokerage firm, uh, Janney Montgomery Scott. I did research on the companies that were chosen for me by Tony Tabell, who ran a division of that business. He would pick stocks for me with charts. I would go visit them. I'd write letters about those businesses uh, that I had been to visit uh, every week. And then I would go talk to uh, the advisors in the uh, six offices that Jani had, 250 brokers, uh, and I was their research and spoke about those businesses. And, uh, and then uh, I, I started, uh, ultimately I became partners with a friend of mine. Who I, then I went uh, to Shields and Company for two years. And then I became, at that time, was a senior analyst after I'd been working for one year. And then I worked for with a friend of mine uh, who I went to law school with for nine years and then started Baron Capital in 1982. In uh, 1970, my net worth was negative. 1980 uh, was the first year I became worth a million dollars and made a million dollars in a year. 1982, we started Baron Capital. We had $10 million under management. And uh, by 1992, and it was all from one person. That was all from George Soros. In 1975 or 76, he was one of my 100 institutional clients, uh, hedge funds and mutual funds, uh, for whom I did research and sold it for commissions. 
And in 1975 or 76, I don't recall which year it was, he'd had a difficult year and he and Quantum Fund Board decided that they would have some other people manage money for uh, George instead of uh, just George. And uh, he gave me five million and gave four other guys five million. Uh, that had grown uh, to 10 million in, uh, by 1982 when we started Baron Capital. So that was the money under management, 10 million dollars. In fact, we were walking into the office this morning uh, after breakfast and I was telling uh, one of uh, the individuals I was with, did I ever tell you uh, why George uh, gave me money? I, I said, how come you gave me money? And he said, uh, they, of course, I was his favorite, one of his uh, five or six favorite analysts. Uh, but he said that, uh, he said, uh, you're a survivor. And so I was very proud of that. You're a survivor. So that was 1982, 1992. We had $100 million under management. And uh, we had started our first mutual fund. And, uh, and presently, we have under management uh, $28 billion. And since 1992, we've made our clients uh, $26 billion in profits. It's, it's an incredible story, and not just, not just professionally and what it says about you know, your, the, the track record in asset management and performance and history, but just biographically, it, it's really uh, an American uh, success story. And, and I know you and I share a, a tremendous love of the aspirational society, and you're, you're this embodiment in it. Tell me, tell me how um, that may have affected your view of growth investing. Does your own success sort of parallel to to the growth success stories you want to invest in? Um, I just came out of a meeting uh, with a company called Heiko, in which we have an investment, not for Baron Growth Fund because it's too large a market cap, uh, but the founder of that company, uh, Larry uh, Mendelson. Uh, was here with his son, who's president of that company, and they're an airport, uh, airplane, uh, aerospace uh, supplier, uh, uh, designed in parts that once they get designed in, uh, they can't be replaced. And what they do as well is that uh, in the aftermarket, they are competitive priced uh, products to uh, the leading uh, plane manufacturers, uh, like a Boeing, and they sell parts that are identical to the, uh, to their parts for Forty uh, percent less than uh, the airplanes airlines would pay to a Boeing, for example. And we were talking about businesses, and he says, "You know, uh, businesses are all about people, and they're all about investing in people, and it's all about, uh, you know." He says, "Your business here, uh, if you look at all these people who surround you, uh, without those people, you know, if you're not here and they're not here, what do you have? You don't have anything. You don't have a building. Uh, that's it's the business. It's so, so thinking about." Uh, our business, I've always found uh, the success uh, that I've had has been about identifying individuals uh, in whom we've invested on behalf of our clients in our mutual funds who run the businesses for our, our mutual funds uh, in which we've invested, as well as finding uh, these great individuals at Barron Capital uh, in whom we've invested. And, uh, you know, we invest, you know, we hire brilliant, nice people and we train them uh, and we keep them. And that's how we follow, that's how we identify these companies, that's how we keep them. So it's all, our business is all about people, the companies in which we invest, whether they own buildings or whether they're service businesses, they're all about people too. So my whole life is about thinking about, you know, investing in people, being around people who I like, who I think are smart, hardworking, uh, who are interested in, uh, in, in, the, in the client experience and the customers, so, so we invest in our employees, we invest in the company executives and who, who manage these businesses, and we invest in them for the long term. So we have a process uh, that has made our business successful. And, and the fact that, you know, I've been able to, we've been able to accomplish this uh, in, you know, in, for our business, and I, I think we have a lot more to go, uh, then uh, that's made me very optimistic about you know, about our business and about uh, about our country. So, Ron, talk to me about the the key takeaway there is just the value of people and how much uh, the, the people matter in what you invest in and, and how you position your own company and your company's culture. 
when we talk about that growth premium and that performance that you've achieved over the years on the backs of your process and your commitment to a people-driven culture, talk to me about inflation and how you view growth investing vis-a-vis the reality of inflation. So, so our belief, uh, my belief, is that the value of your money uh, falls in half every 17 years. And if you look at uh, historically w- what it costs uh, to go to college, what it costs to uh, go across the bridges and through the tunnels, uh, what it costs to go to dinner, what it costs to buy clothes, what it costs to buy your house, car, everything, uh, it basically doubles in price every 17 years. And what that means is that if you have $100,000 in the bank today, then in 17 years, it'll have $50,000 of purchasing power. And in 17 more years, it'll be worth $25,000. In 17 more years, it'll be worth $12,500. So somehow, uh, you've got to protect yourself. And the reason for that is every single democracy that has ever existed uh, does the same thing. They devalue your currency. The Romans and the Greeks did it. They took uh, you know, so precious metals out of their coins. They split the coins two for one. Uh, but, but they always make your money worth less. And the reason is uh, they want you to, if you've been so successful uh, because you're living in their country, they want you to take uh, your money and, uh, and invest it and create jobs in a strong, vibrant middle class so the government will persist and, and the country will persist. So number one is that I think about the value of your money always falling. And, you know, I, I was talking, we were at dinner last night, and my wife was telling some friends uh, that we were with uh, who were grandparents, I guess. Uh, but she was saying that, uh, do you know how much it costs to send uh, children who were four and six years old uh, to to school? Uh, and, and she said, you know, Judy says, you know, uh, preschool now in New York City is $46,000 for half a day. And uh, that's our four-year-old and our six-year-old uh, it's also 46000 so they give you a deal. It's a whole day. $46,000. When I went to college in 1961, it was $2,500 in my first year and $3,500 in my, in my last year. And so I, and when, when, they, when uh, uh, Jefferson uh, made the Louisiana Purchase in 1804 or 1810 or 12, whenever it was, it was $12 million dollars. Uh, for the whole, uh, and that was for one third of our country, $12 million. And uh, so, so, so I think about things in terms of the value of your money falling in half every 17 years. Now, how do you take care of that? Well, you can invest in businesses, you can invest in art, you can invest in real estate, you got to invest in something. Otherwise, you won't have enough money to, uh, and if you do, and you're successful, then you will have a very good lifestyle for yourself and your family. And I happen to think that stocks, I've been watching stocks since I've been a child, since I've been a kid. Uh, my parents were never able to invest in them. I, my dad was an engineer for the government. And, uh, but I've been interested in stocks since I'm 13, 14, 15 years old. And, and, but he was never able to invest. So, and, and so our feeling is that the stock market, every uh, 10 or 12 years, doubles. And the reason for that is because the economy doubles every 10 or 12 years. So the stock market and the economy are interlinked, uh, you know, intertwined, and they always have been. They don't always go to the same place at the same time, but ultimately they get to the same place. And you can also have periods of time with significant, you know, extended periods of time where the stock market is disconnected from what's happening in the economy. Uh, and then all of a sudden it catches up one way or the other. And so, so, so that's the, the essence of it. And the where, where you can go to prove that to yourself is if you go back to 1960, you see that the, uh, the GDP in the United States at that time uh, was 520 billion. That was President Kennedy was, uh, was president, 520 billion. And I think the defense budget was then $100 billion. 520 billion, the size of the economy. That's almost half of what the, a little bit more than half of what the value of Apple is today. So 520 billion, uh, the economy is now 20 trillion. So it's compounded at somewhere between uh, six and 7% a year uh, since that time. And then uh, the, the stock market, the Dow Jones then was 600 on the Dow Jones, and the Dow Jones is now 24,000. 
that's also that's maybe seven or eight percent a year compounded economy. Uh, the stock market has gotten a little bit more expensive than it was when uh, when you look back then, but not much. And uh, and the reason for it is the character of businesses has changed significantly. So it used to be that you'd want to buy something at ten times earnings, and then it went to uh, you know a book value, and then it went to replacement book value, and then it went to uh, you know, then it went to multiple of EBITDA, and uh, and now uh, it's sometimes, oftentimes, a multiple revenues. And the reason for it is the the character of our economy has changed significantly. It's gone, uh, you know. So so now incremental revenues to many businesses in which we invest are enormously high profit margins, eighty or ninety percent profit margins, because the economy has become capital light once major investments have been made. So therefore, they're worthy of higher multiples than they had been before. Management companies, uh, franchise companies, they're they're worth more. Platform companies are worth more uh, because uh, when they are able to grow and their uh, markets in which they operate are immature then the opportunity for them to grow profitability is significant. So what we do is we're trying to find businesses. So our process is relatively simple. What we do is we invest in businesses uh, that we think can grow significantly from, uh, from where they are today. Number one, growth prospects. Number two is that there's competitive advantages that they have which are, uh, you know, hopefully insurmountable, at least to a large extent for some extended period of time. Number three, we're investing in people uh, who run those businesses, uh, and, and we have to have faith that they will be able to be good stewards, and they will work hard, and they were smart, and they hire well, and uh, they are good leaders. Uh, and when the people they hire, they can keep them. And then we invest for the long term. So most people buy and sell stocks uh, trying to predict what, uh, is going to happen in Korea or what's going to happen in Iran or whether uh, President Trump will be impeached or what this guy Cohn is going to be uh, have done uh, or, uh, you know, or whether uh, they're going or, or what's going to happen with taxes or what's going to happen with interest rates or oil prices. So everyone is trying to predict uh, what uh, some impact the impact will be on the economy uh, if certain developments take place. And uh, they're trying to predict uh, what's unpredictable, whether events happen or whether they don't. And even if they could predict it, it wouldn't be helpful to them because they wouldn't know whether those events have been uh, reflected in stock prices or not. So our, our, ours is a very simple approach. We're trying to find businesses that can grow a lot, have competitive advantage, great people, and invest for the long term. Average mutual fund turns over its portfolio every year. Uh, and uh, or less, and uh, hedge funds are days, weeks, months, seconds, nanoseconds, milliseconds, uh, and barren growth fund, for example, the average portfolio uh, turnover is every uh, 12 or 13 or 14 years. So we hold stocks 12, 13, 14 years. In fact, in many instances, we hold them much longer than that. And, uh, and, 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 uh, and the idea is that not so much the holding period, but rather, oftentimes, we invest in businesses that are penalizing current results in order to become much larger companies so the current uh, operation doesn't reflect what the business can become. And as long as we see uh, the KPIs, the key performance indicators of the businesses improving, even though the profits are not in the short term, we think the profits ultimately follow the growth of the business. And so oftentimes we get a chance to invest in businesses because we have this long-term perspective that other people cannot invest in. And the reason other people don't copy what we've done is because we have a track record and they don't because we've been doing this for a long time. You can't say you're a long-term investor when you buy and sell stocks all the time, but when you invest in businesses the way we have and have good results, then you can say that. And then people will say, okay, I will give them a chance uh, even though they're not performing this year, last year, next year, uh, then in the past, whenever that's taken place, then afterwards we have these great results that they've achieved. And so, so I expect that to continue to be the case. I expect to continue to invest in businesses that in the short term are penalizing profitability uh, for the long term in order to, be, uh, to become uh, much larger businesses in the future than they are today. And how have we done? Well, if you look at Barron Growth Fund and you look as, as uh, the largest fund uh, that I manage, I don't think it's going to be the largest fund in our firm 
for long, this international, this uh, emerging market fund seems to be uh, getting the, 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 not seems to be, is getting the most flows in our business. Uh, so Barron Growth Fund is $6 billion three. Uh, probably Emerging Markets Fund is probably up almost $6 billion by now. Uh, but uh, but Barron Growth Fund in 1994, December 94 is when I started it, and when we started it. And if you had invested in the index, the Russell 2000 Growth Index, when we started, that's the benchmark, when we started it in 1994, this long-term investing firm, uh, then you would find that if you invested $10,000, then it would today be worth $60,000. If you invested $10,000 in an index fund that matched the S&P 500, 10,000 would be worth 90,000. If you invested $10,000 in Barron Growth Fund, then it would be worth $176,000. So we've done twice what the S&P has done and triple what, uh, what, what, the, uh, what the Russell 2000 growth has done. And what I tell people when they say, ask me, they say, well, what should I be doing about index funds? What should I be doing with passive investing? And I say, well, the more there's passive investing that takes place, the better it is for me because that means that fewer and fewer people are doing research, which makes the research that we do more and more valuable. So we keep investing in the people at our firm who do this research and, and the competitive advantage that we create is this knowledge that we have of all these businesses in which we've invested and their prospects, which is gonna enable us, we think in the long term, to make very high rates of return, continue to make very high rates of return for our clients. But when I consider about how well passive investing is done, um, you know, most people should have a, a, a portion of their investments, maybe even a major portion, in passive investing. And the reason for it is that very few people have been able to, to beat the indexes. Of course, we have, uh, but, uh, but there's not many of us. And, and our funds, for example, uh, bearing 98.9% uh, of our mutual funds have beaten the passive indexes. And 96.5% are in the top 12% of mutual funds, and 36.5% are in the top 1%. So I don't think there's anyone with a better record. On the other hand, if you chose to invest in an S&P 500 index fund, and, uh, and, and uh, which, which you know, so, so that people say, so what should I do? I'm a millennial. What should I do? How should I invest? And I said, well, if you can't find, if you, if you don't have all your money invested with us or a significant amount invested with us or a significant amount invested in some way that's uh, is beaten the indexes, a, a passive is great. And, uh, and for, if you take $5,000 a year, for example, and you invest $5,000 a year in an S&P index fund and you've got historic rates of return, uh, in 10 years, $5,000 a year will become worth $110,000. And if you invest for 20 years, uh, uh, $10,000 would become worth almost $300,000. And if you invest for 30 years, you know, if you live long enough and you do it for 30 years, you keep investing this $5,000 in this in this index fund, uh, you'll be worth $850,000 or $860,000 on historic rates of return, which I think are going to be in, in the future similar to what they've been in the past. So, so the idea is that to be successful and to be a long-term investor, the key is not having a lot of money to invest, but rather investing small amounts regularly for a long amount of time. And then you get to have a great deal of money and you get to have security for your family. So in, in that sense, the process that you're defining, I mean, the, the mathematical goal uh, is to, to be able to outperform inflation, to offset the malignant effect of inflation eating away at the value of money and doing it with high quality growth investing the way in which you've done it at Barron is by having patience with well-run companies and and having a process that is research driven versus nowadays we see so many small cap managers and really all asset classes Ron but but particularly in the small cap side you see guys jumping in that don't they don't even care about the individual companies they're buying off quantitative metrics and they're buying off momentum and they're uh, all this other stuff, but they're not looking at underlying businesses. Is that a fair summary of your process differentiation? Absolutely. So computers can pretty much figure out. I think stocks in the short term are pretty fairly valued. You know, they're, uh, everyone knows as much as they can know about 
uh, you know, about businesses, you know, that, that are uh, the quantitative uh, measures, and everyone will, and, and so the stock market moves in in tandem, and and and, uh, and developments of businesses uh, are reflected in their stock price. The stock market is pretty uh, accurate as far as assessing valuations in the short term. Where it's not very good is assessing valuation in the long term because people can't invest. Uh, successfully, uh, you know, because they because people don't they don't have the the track record, and so they can't invest uh, for the long term in businesses that are competitive. So stock, the computers can't assess people, and they can't assess competitive advantage. That's what we do. That's how come you know we've grown from in uh, 2006. We had 20 analysts and portfolio managers. We now have 37. We then had 60 people working here. We now have 147. And so every single year uh, since 2006, there's not a single year we haven't hired at least eight people. Uh, and so this is through thick and thin. Stock market's doing well, stock market's not doing well. Uh, we're in the middle of a financial panic. Uh, we're hiring. <laughs> we just keep hiring. And the reason we do is we're a private company. So we can afford to have our profit margins under pressure. I don't want to lose money. But, uh, but we can have our profit margins uh, be de minimis or we can have it uh, being, you know, okay. We're not going to be like a T. Rowe Price. A T. Rowe Price, uh, which is a, who is a, a great company, great investors. And, but they'll have their, their model is that they have a 40% profit margin and, uh, and they pay their employees uh, 31% of revenues. And our business model is instead of paying people 31% of revenues, we pay people uh, 50 to 55 percent of revenues, and instead of having a 40 percent profit margin, uh, we'll have a profit margin that could be the low single digits or the mid 20s. Um, I would like it to be over 20, but you know, in the short term, it doesn't matter to me. Uh, all I want to do is to keep investing in our business, uh, so that, that's our competitive advantage. Keep investing in our business so that we can hire these great people and 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 they and train them and keep them. And the reason we keep them is because because uh, it's a fun place to work. It's a really interesting place to work. People, it, curiosity is a great uh, uh, you know you know characteristic of of an analyst. And and so when you're curious and you want to learn how things work and uh, take it apart in your mind and put it back together again, disassemble it, reassemble it, uh, and meet really interesting people. You create a really interesting job, uh, and and then you keep people working here because uh, they like the people they work with, and because what they do uh, is self-actualized, and they, they really enjoy the work, and they build relationships with uh, uh, with with executives who are building businesses. When a, when an executive goes, our commissions that we generate are very low. I mean, we're probably fifteen or twenty million dollars a year of commissions, and people with one third of the assets that we have do as much commissions in three or four days as we do in a year. And, uh, you know, hedge funds would trade all and they could do in, in three or four days, they could do as much business in a year. But when companies are going public or when uh, banks are trying to uh, impress their clients, they're not making money off of us because our commissions are so low, but they still bring around companies to us all the time. So every day, in our office, there's two or three or four meetings where executives are being brought to speak to us about their businesses and companies in which we have uh, significant investments. They come see us all the time. And when they go visit one of those people who generates all those commissions and they go visit them one time and the guy happens to be prepared at that moment, you know, sometimes, uh, and then they come back a month later the guy doesn't have any idea of any of the fundamentals of those businesses. So the, so the executive says, gee, why am I coming here? But they come to us because they want us to be an investor in their business. They want us to be a part owner of their business. And we don't think about investing in stocks. We think about investing in business. So going back to just compounding, and the reason we're able to look through the volatility that periodically takes place in the market, the reason we're able to take investments and live with them for a very long time is because when I started in business in 19, when I started Baron Cap, when we started Baron Capital, 
Susan Robbins and I, and then Linda Martinson a year later, 1982 and 1983. And by the way, those two individuals are still here. Uh, in 1982, the Dow Jones, when we started in March, uh, uh, March 15th of 1982, uh, was, eight, was 800. Uh, and then actually it went through 1,000 in the end of the summer. And we had been buying and selling stocks, buying them six times earnings, selling them 10 times earnings for for years. And then all of a sudden it goes through a thousand. I said, gee, what's my business going to be now? Now these stocks are 10 times earnings or, and, and 12 times. And now they're not. What, what's the next business? But the bottom line is that at that time, the Dow was 800. And then in, uh, in 1992, uh, the Dow was 3,700. And then in 2003, the Dow was 8,700. And now the Dow is 24,000. And uh, I was uh, talking on CNBC. I said, uh, this is, uh, I guess, in 2015, uh, the Dow was 14 or 15,000. And I said, in 10 years, the Dow will be 30,000. That was in 2015. Now the Dow is 24,000. So, so, so every 10 or 12 years, if someone had told me the beginning of my career, career Ron, the, 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 what you have to keep your eye on is to know that the economy grows two or three percent real and three or four percent more with inflation and six or seven or eight percent a year on average uh, with inflation plus uh, plus real growth. Uh, and the stock market is going to reflect that and double every 10 or 12 years. The stock market run is going to double every 10 or 12 years. No one ever told me that. It's just that hap- you know, when I go back and I look what's happened in my lifetime, that's what I see. So it's easy for me to be able when I see the stock market volatile and I see that what's happened to uh, the stock market, the Dow Jones indicators, and I look at what's happened to some of these investments that we've made over the years. I was writing in the current quarterly letter that in 1993 uh, was the year that, uh, with a, a couple of exceptions, that I haven't made investments anymore. And I said that in 1992 or 93, uh, because I thought it was a, would be a conflict. And so in 1992 or 1993, I invested what was a you know significant amount of money for you at the time, uh, $678,000. And I think that's what I said in the quarter of the letter. And uh, I invested in, and that's now worth, um, what the heck is it? I think it's uh, $24 million, is it? Can I see my quarterly letter? I can find that. Um, and, uh, and, and, and we received... Uh, Two and a half million dollars of dividend so far. I think it was 24 times, maybe 17. Million. I'll find out that what the number is. But but Charles Schwab was a dollar in 1992, and it's now 55. Robert Half in 1990 was a dollar, uh, dollar and a half, and it's now 60. Uh, 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 Alexander's in 1989, uh, having sold these stocks, uh, was was uh, selling for. A price of uh, 55 is what we paid for it. It's now 380, and I think we've gotten 200 dollars in dividends. And Choice Hotels, which was a spin out of Manor Care, uh, was selling uh, was three and a half dollars a share. It's now 80. Let me see this. So, um, and so while you while you look that up, then I'll I'll interject what to kind of reiterate this so ever so important point that 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 Ron is making. You you have a approach to small cap and growth investing in our industry right now that is so frequently um, driven by a short term trend or the false pretense that one can even know what a short term trend will do and how it will play out. You, you have an underlying philosophy that is obsessed with quarterly movements and sometimes even shorter than that, monthly and weekly movements. And, and what, what Ron's describing the philosophy as Ben at Barron is this belief in the long-term compounding of companies that are themselves compounding their own earnings and, and receiving the return premium that comes from that commitment to disciplined growth investing which clearly requires patience, which isn't free of risk. It isn't free of mistakes. It isn't free of volatility. But these results that he's referring to are a byproduct of this discipline and, and a discipline that, of course, at the Bonson Group, we, we believe in so much and never cease preaching and, and we think stands out against 
so many of these other ideas that are very faddish tend to tend to come and go. And here we have something that uh, that is uh, Dr. Nassim Taleb says has skin in the game because it has stood the test of time. So, so Ron, you were looking up the, the particular result there, and I'll let you finish your point. So in, uh, in 1993, the Dow Jones was 3,754, and it's now 24,000, so it's increased sixfold since 1993. And that, those investments I was describing to you, $678,000 in uh, 1993, uh, have a present market value of 16.1 million, so it's 24 times their cost. So the market went up six times, we went up 24 times, and in addition to that, we've received 2.6 million in dividends. And uh, that's for investments of Choice Hotels, Charles Schwab, Alexander's, and Robert Half, that cost Barron Capital $678,000. And another example was that in, 19, in 2002, we were considering starting a large cap growth fund. So without doing a great deal of research, uh, I wanted to just see, to, to create my own benchmark of businesses that we had run across and thought were good, good businesses, and I wanted to see how they would perform. So we made uh, you know nine uh, investments, which totaled uh, four hundred seventy-five thousand dollars, you know fifty thousand uh, dollars per investment. And we invested in Home Depot, Tiffany, J.M. Smucker, Procter and Gamble, Berkshire Hathaway, T. Rowe Price, Charles Schwab, Goldman Sachs, and Qualcomm, and, and just let it ride. And those investments, uh, which cost four hundred seventy-five thousand dollars in 2002 are now worth 2.2 million. So 4.7 times their cost. And, but the market was 8,300 then. So all you had to do was invest in the market. It was 8,300, it's now 24,000. You would have made a triple in the market. Just happens that we would have made you 4.7 times. Um, which, you know, the more, but the market, much better than the value. If, if you look at 2002 and think about what things cost in 2002 and you use my rule of thumb, about losing half of your purchasing power every 17 years. So this is 16 years. Uh, and just think about, just look up what things cost in 2002 and look up what they cost now. And I bet you that they're more than twice as much now as they were then on average. And you will see, I, you know, one of the analysts I work with very closely, and he helps me a lot with my speeches, uh, is Matt Weiss. And I tell him all the time about this 3 or 4% a year inflation. And it's sort of hard to people to believe when all you read about is there is no inflation and, uh, and don't worry about it. It's not going to be meaningful. And, uh, but, you know, I tell them about these things and we look up, uh, you know, you know, and we, we, and we, and we use the, you know, the internet to look up things and it's amazing about three or 4%. That's what it is all the time. And I tell people about uh, real estate, real estate goes up you know, it's real estate's a 4% growth business. And what do you know? You know, things cost 4% a year on average, except if you have land on the ocean, then it's 7% a year. But real estate, good real estate is 3 or 4% a year, uh, you know, uh, increase in value, uh, plus it throws off a yield. So that that's interesting investments as well. You can get probably close to double digit rates of return if you're investing in, uh, in in very good real estate. So real estate is sort of a, a you know a, a, a base that we have in many of our portfolios. It might be eight, nine, ten percent. So Adam Smith used to say that all value in England a couple hundred years ago that all value is derived from real estate. And real estate is a very good long term investment. And and you can see compounding taking place in those businesses of you know close to four percent a year. You know, Tom Frisker, we have an investment in Hyatt Corporation. And, you know, so I often talk with him about the locations of, of hotels in center cities. And, and he says, Ron, in, uh, in Europe, when you go into uh, those cities that are hundreds of years old, he says the best, the best real estate was taken over by hotels uh, 500 years ago. So we can't have the best real estate in every individual city. You know, you can buy one that uh, that exists already, but if you don't uh, buy, you can't you can't just build it. And but so therefore, the way he distinguishes uh, his business is that he has really good real estate. He tries to get as uh, close to the very best real estate as he can, but he distinguishes his business by providing 
extraordinary services to his customers. He tries to, he, empathy is an important characteristic of great executives. And so whether it's to the people who are uh, his employees or the people who are his customers. And so he thinks about it, Charles Schwab thinks about it the same way, through their customer eyes. So through the customer eyes. And, uh, and so Tom thinks about if I were the customer, if I were going to a hotel in a city where I hadn't been before, what is it that I would like to have in my hotel that's going to make me enjoy my stay better than I would otherwise? And he'll say, well, uh, they, they keep track, all sorts of information they gather on you now in their hotels, and they ask you questions when you stay there. And one might f- find, you know, that this guy is a jogger. And he goes out and, uh, and, and runs wherever he, where, when he stays, he uses our gym. And so they put in your room uh, a map of where the, most re- the, the, the best uh, running areas are, the safest and the most interesting. They'll, they'll be in your room when you get there. And, uh, and there might be a little note from the chef in the kitchen saying, uh, Dear Ron, uh, I see that you enjoy jogging in cities, and I want you to know that I jog every morning at six o'clock. If you want to join me, I'd be happy to run with you. So that sort of thing is uh, is in, you know is involved with him. And then he thinks about well, gee, uh, you know every every hotel, half of our business, half of Hyatt's business is business and a businessman. And so businessmen, whether you're Google or whether you're Apple, you know what they want to do is they want to stay in something when they have meetings. They want it to be great for their employees. So what he does is he buys these spas. He has a spa Miraval, and he buys it, which looks like an expensive price that he's paid a couple hundred million dollars and not too much cash flow, but a really interesting business. Of course, he's ultimately going to make that business, so it's going to be he'll buy it for a 10 times multiple, which is a reasonable multiple. But more importantly than that, he's going to take that and he's going to, to use that inside of his hotels to give the guests who stay there a better experience than they would have had otherwise. So the companies that we invest in, the executives, are always thinking about their employees and their customers. Shareholders come last. The shareholders will benefit if the employees and customers do well. The the shareholders are not the main focus of the executives that I like to invest in. And, and isn't that the beauty of the, the free enterprise system that, that when one has the alignment right, they can be thinking about the interest of others and it, it can benefit them as a byproduct of that whole process. And shareholders benefit when executives are looking after their customers and, and advisors and money managers benefit when we're looking after our clients. And, and so it's all about keeping the first things first and, and, and allowing that, that process to play out. Well, well, Ron, they told, they told me that, uh, that you had a tight schedule and I don't want to overdo your time here today. If you, if you don't mind, I'll ask one closing question and, and we'll adjourn. And we've so appreciated your time here today. But, but you, you've talked, um, you just mentioned some things around real estate, but one thing I'm intrigued, and it's not one of the questions I've actually asked you in the past in some of our private time together, this incredible career, this very successful uh, career that you've enjoyed in growth uh, investing, you talk about small cap stocks as, uh, like they're actual real life companies, which they are, almost sounds you know more like a private equity thought than, than even, you know, a typical stock market conversation. But I'm curious of all the asset classes that you could have gone into, what was it about the stock market and particularly growth and small cap that attracted you versus at the time in the, in the early part of your career, commodities or fixed income or other such asset classes? Um, well, what I was planning to do in, uh, after I had started in business. So initially, it wasn't being a long-term investor. Initially, I was staying alive by finding ideas in which to invest and getting people who were my hedge fund clients usually to buy and sell them. So it was, uh, it was Disney. It was McDonald's. It was uh, um, you know, Nike, Federal Express, uh, Dalen, which turned into Home Depot, Mattel, um, Hyatt. Uh, so, so initially, that's what it was. So I wasn't that interested in commodities because I thought, you know, they could go up and they can go down, but that wasn't really a long-term investment. I, I didn't have the idea of 
of, of, of thinking that I should have a lot of gold or I should have a lot of corn uh, uh, or, 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 or seed. And uh, although we did invest into Calvin Pioneer on behalf, you know, because they were making their farms much more productive. But I was always I always thought that uh, my parents never had an opportunity to invest. They never experienced this when I had when I was growing up. Uh, my friends who had wealthy grandparents, uh, they gave them Eastman Kodak stock for uh, to pay for their college. And my friends whose parents were doctors or lawyers or real estate people or owned brides in the boardwalk, and they got stock in Polaroid. Uh, which, and at those time, the Eastman Kodak was the bluest. The blue chips kept going up. Polaroid went from, I don't know, $50 to $250. And I would watch this and I said, oh my God. And then when I started in business and I started buying and selling these stocks, I would say, I, w- I, would, I would make commissions every time I bought and sold. And that was how I made a, a livelihood. And then I looked back in 10 or 15 years and I looked at some, what some of these companies had become. And Disney was building a park in Orlando at the time. And I said, oh my God, they're gonna have uh, instead of 5,000 acres that they had in California, they have 100,000 acres in Florida. And instead of paying, you know, whatever the acreage was in California, which is expensive, they're buying acreage in Florida and Orlando for $50 an acre. And instead of giving up all of the, you know, ancillary businesses to uh, to other people for the park that they had built in, in Disneyland, uh, they were going to own everything uh, all around them. And so, so I felt you can analyze, you can figure out what a business can become. You can figure out the strategies. You can say, gee, I like these people. Gee, these businesses that they're building, that can be a really big business. Nike, I used to run in the park when I moved to New York and I would hurt my Achilles tendon all the time. And someone's, and, and a Nike comes out, this is 19, uh, early 70s, they come out with a waffle uh, shoe and all of a sudden I run in the park and don't hurt myself anymore. And, uh, so, so I, I, I thought about these these businesses and what they were creating. McDonald's, they had where were different than all the other franchisors that they happened to own the real estate of the franchisees, which they would lease to them. And but they were unique in the ownership of the real estate and the advertising that they create. They created this ability to advertise so that people didn't have it because they were so big, so they could scale. So I thought about uh, about that. And I could I could analyze it. I could think about it. I can't figure out. A commodity price, it can go up or down, uh, and you could be right for a while, but that's not going to create wealth because every time you buy and sell something, you got to pay a lot of taxes on that. But but here, you could change people's lives. I have friends of mine who, uh, who one of my best friends, uh, who when I started in business, he brought his wife to see me, who he met in Europe before uh, he brought her to meet his uh, his, his mother. And she, they come back, and I'm a lifeguard on the beach, and I have long hair, and I'm teaching water skiing, and and I said, and have a beard and a motorcycle, and uh, I said, yeah, she's great. And he married her, and and uh, and ultimately, uh, he's in Florida. He's a district attorney, and his and when I started in business, he gave me five thousand dollars. He'd been saving up to buy a fifty thousand dollar house in, uh, in in Dade. And, and he tells his wife, he tells Sheila, he says, uh, I just gave Ronnie uh, uh, $5,000 to invest with us. And she says, are you crazy? You gave it to that guy with all the long hair and the motorcycle you out of your mind? And that $5,000 became worth millions, millions. And, and it paid for, uh, you know, of course, he had to go through some real pain with his wife when, he, when, when that happened for a while. But it became worth. It became paid for his daughter's marriage, paid for his house, paid for his retirement, uh, paid for getting his uh, kids married, paid for everything. One and the last story I leave you with is one of the best stories I have. Is that one of my uh, my my children when they were young? My guys are 37 and 38 right now, but they 30 years ago went to camp uh, in Maine, and uh, after a couple or three years, uh, the owners of the camp. Uh, call me up and they say, uh, you know, Ronnie, I, I understand that you invest for people. Uh, could you help us? Could you invest for us? So I said, Barbara, come on in, bring Stan, come on in, and we'll talk. And I, I'm sure I can help you. So they come in and they say that uh, we have, we want to turn over our camp to our son, Peter, and uh, and we want to, uh, to we have $500,000 saved up. Uh, can you help us? So I said, sure, I can do that. I can take care of that. And so they gave me the whole $500,000. And then about, I don't know, five or six years ago, 
uh, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, they call and they say they'd like to take out $50,000 a year. So was that a problem? I said, no problem. And then about five or six years ago, they called me back and they said, uh, Barbara calls me and she says, Ronnie, I, I can't understand uh, your statements here. And uh, we've been taking out $50,000 a year for a number of years now. And uh, is there anything left? I said, Barbara, I'm sure there is. Let me call up Peggy and ask her. And Peggy's our CFO. So I said, Peggy, Barbara's on the phone. Barbara and Stan are on the phone for me. Can you please look up their account and tell me uh, you know, how much it's worth? And so Peggy uh, calls me, looks it up. She calls me back. And she says, Ron, it's worth $5 million. And so I tell Barbara that it's worth $5 million. She started to sob on the phone. And that's one of the coolest stories that I have. But I have lots of stories like that. Well, that that is a pretty cool story, and 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 for our from our vantage point, Ron, on the wealth management side of the business, engaged in client relationship management each and every day. Those are the stories that that we live for too, and and it sure is easier for us to to deliver the results and the process that we commit to delivering when we have asset management partners like yourself. So we. We thank you not only for your time here today and for your willingness to share your story and your philosophy and vision, but also for your firm's commitment to disciplined growth investing and, and for everything that you've you've taught me and my colleagues about this whole space. It's fascinating, and I hope our listeners have enjoyed it as much today as, as I have. So. Uh, I will I will bid us adieu here on Advice and Insights. We thank you for listening, and we encourage you to subscribe to the Advice and Insights podcast. Check out thebonsongroup.com for more information. Once again, we thank our special guest, Ron Barron of the Barron Funds. Thank you for listening to our Advice and Insights podcast with David L. Bonson. The Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there's no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced here and will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analyses, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team in Hightower shall not be in any way liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates.